Folks, if you're liking what you're getting from 30MPC, the number one way you can support us is by subscribing to our newsletter. Every week, you only get two emails. On Monday, you get a content roll-up of everything that dropped last week. And on Fridays, I pick one topic and I personally write a deep dive on things like how to cold call, how to run a discovery call, or even how to hire an AE. So if you're liking what you're getting here, take two seconds, go to the show notes. You'll see a button to subscribe to our newsletter, or you can go to 30mpc.com backslash newsletter and do it there. We'll catch you soon. Cheers. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Froke, and I'm here with my co-host, Nick Sigelski. And today, we have an enterprise account executive, a former teacher, and for that reason, one of the best we've ever had in terms of breaking things step by step down. It is Kristen Connor from the one and only User Gems. Nick, why should people listen? I actually have two reasons why you might want to listen. Believe it or not, if you listen to 30 Minutes to President's Club, you may learn something every now and then, usually from when I'm talking or the guests, not as much my wonderful co-host. But a lot of people listen to this show, and they don't actually absorb or execute and implement the stuff that they are learning. And Kristen gives us some actionable, practical stuff that you can use so that you get more juice from your squeeze from the stuff you learn on 30 Minutes to President's Club. And then we transition the conversation into talking around step-by-step how you might want to structure your discovery calls. And Kristen has sort of a different format and theming around how she sets her discovery calls up. So if you have not had the chance to learn from her before, I guess if you weren't in her classroom as a student, you haven't, you may want to give this one a listen. And she makes it a easy as a three, two, one, a A, B, C, a one, two, three. Let's go. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. Today's deal acceleration cheat code is brought to you by Pipedrive, which is a CRM built by sellers for sellers. The best way to drive your pipeline forward is to every single day pull up a list of all of your open opportunities and look at each opportunity by stage and think, what can I do today that will increase my likelihood of winning this deal? That's how you keep your ops moving forward in between meetings that you have on the calendar. Now, we documented five cheat codes that can help you cut your sales cycle in half with Pipedrive. There's a link in the show notes to steal them. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90 Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes. This week's actionable prospecting tactic is from Sixth Sense, who shows you the prospects who are most likely to buy so you can get more meetings with fewer activities. Personalizing cold emails requires you to only change the first paragraph in a trigger template. All you have to do is tie the research to the problem you solve in paragraph one, and then switch that out while you leave paragraphs two and three, your solution and call to action, exactly the same. And so we are giving you six of these trigger templates with our partners at Sixth Sense. The link is in the show notes. 
This actionable competitive tactic from Clue is the trap question. Steer discovery toward the winning zone. If we're competing with a podcast that has no newsletter or webinar series, we might ask a trap question like, how do you figure out if those podcast listeners are making their way to your mailing list? And when you're in a head-to-head, there's no better way to prepare for your next competitive battle than with our trap questions and battle card templates from our friends at Clue. The link's in the show notes. All right, Kristen, welcome to the show. You know we start every single episode with your top three actionable takeaways, so let's get your three. All right, top three. Number one is stop and synthesize. So these three are all going to be around taking charge of your own development as a rep, not just leaning on what training you may or may not have gotten. Stop and synthesize. So we we all listen to 30 MPC, right? We all listen to books on Audible, but how often do we stop when we hear something we want to use? We stop we listen, we write it down in our own words, which is synthesis, right? Creating something new so that we can remember that later and don't just roll through and keep listening. Great. What's number two? Number two follows that. So make time to practice, right? So once we find something that we want to use and we've we've got this tip and we've put it into our own words, let's say it's a discovery question, right? So we heard this wonderful discovery question on 30 MPC. We've stopped, we've written it down, we've made it relevant to the way we do discovery in our own organizations. Then we want to make time to practice it. There's a number of ways to practice it, but what works for me is writing it down and saying it out loud. So I have a stack here, a very ugly, non-conformist stack of probably 25 different things that are either second level discovery questions or points that I want to really be able to make succinctly in calls. And so I want to practice it just for muscle memory. And I have time blocked off on my calendar to practice those. Round us out. What's number three? So number three is create systems, right? Create ways to execute the things that are important. So we were talking before about that James Clear quote uh, in Atomic Habits, where he says, you don't rise to the level of your goals, but you fall to the level of your systems. So we have to create a way to put something in play that we've learned, right? So if if we hear a new discovery question, we've written it down, we've practiced it on our note cards, then what I do is then I'll go into my discovery deck and put it in there in the call that I want to use it. So now it's systematized. I know what I want to say. I know where I want to say it. It's in the flow of my day. This is one of the most common mistakes that all C reps make is they soak in all of this advice And then it just pops into their brain randomly in a sales cycle. And they're almost surprising themselves trying to use the advice for the first time. So Kristen, let's go back to number two. You have these 20 or something odd, oddly shaped postcards or note cards of common sales scenarios that you practice. Could you give an example or two of a common sales scenario that you run into that you have a standardized response for? At user gyms, what we're hearing more and more is not just people interested in pipeline generation, but also churn prevention. And so I want to be able to speak very clearly about how user gyms can help with churn prevention. And so I have this, my little note card here, right here, says churn prevention story. And just so I can practice it really succinctly. And so my story is, you know, we have an analytics company that we work with. And in February, a year ago, uh, this time, they started tracking how much revenue was at risk whenever they were alerted when a champion left an organization. And after 10 months, they had tracked that they had saved 53 deals that were at risk. And for them, they have an average ARR on each deal of around 16, 17K. So for them, that meant 840K in saved revenue. So I want to be able to say that really succinctly. And so I've written it down and I practice it. 
So you've got these flashcards that you are using. So when you want to trigger yourself to be able to tell that churn prevention story, you can call on it on demand. I imagine that you're learning new things almost every single day. And there's the opportunity for you to have a stack of 432 flashcards. And so how do you make a decision as to whether or not you're going to take a piece of sales best practice and actually incorporate it into your learning routine? Yeah. So a couple different ways. One is if I feel like there's a gap, um, if I feel like, you know, this is a particular area that I have trouble with or that I know I need more practice in, I'm definitely, that's going to do it. And also sometimes things rotate in and out, right? Like if I practice a certain question several hundred times and I'm like, now it's just routine. It's, it's made it into a routine. Carnegie, I think talks about making things into a routine, right? And once it's a routine that's just implanted in your brain, then you don't need to practice because it's part of your routine. So then you can take that out and replace it with something else. Kristen, let's go back to, um, let's say you learn, you're very big on discovery, right? And let's say that you learn different discovery questions that you could use. So I know, for example, you have a reasonably good relationship with Charles Mulbauer. And one of the, my favorite questions that he taught me was, uh, when was the moment you realized that that was a problem, right? And for me, I now know that the trigger point for when I ask that question is the moment a customer admits to having a problem, right? But let's say you get a discovery question. Could you give the audience a sense of, how do I think about folding that in to my discovery flow. So when I learn a piece of information, what are the different rhythms or systems that I can weave that question into to make sure that it doesn't fall through the cracks? Yeah. So this kind of falls into creating a system, right? Or creating a framework. So Charles Melbar, I love, love his stuff and I've used it to create my framework that's just three steps that I use for discovery calls to make sure that I hit these three highlights in my discovery calls, because this is what I must know coming out of this call with anyone that I'm I'm with. And so the first thing that I want to do, first part of the framework is I want to have instant credibility, but I want to be able to then use that credibility to ask them my first question, which is essentially a version of like, what's your biggest problem or what keeps you up at night, but not in such a cliched way. So the way that we do that is I typically ask in discovery to, again, to establish credibility and then get them talking and say, you know, Armand, typically whenever VPs of sales join these calls, they're kind of facing a couple issues. They are they have hiring freezes and budget freezes, but their quotas aren't going down. They have double digit, very aggressive growth goals. They're not sure they're how they're going to get to, or some of them having record years, they have a lot of cash. They don't need to catch up. They want to capitalize and make a strategic investment in something to grab market share. But I don't know how much any of that sounds like your world and, and what did I miss that you're focused on? You have a really interesting opening question where you're opening with a multiple choice of the three biggest problems that you most commonly find in discovery. Why open that way as opposed to the traditional, why'd you take the call? Or tell me about your top priorities or whatever have you. We call that the menu of pain. And like you've said, um, it is it is a multiple choice, right? And, and it's not essay. And that's the first reason that we don't just say what keeps you up at night. No one likes an essay question. These VPs are running from call to call to call. And if you ask them, tell me what your biggest problem is. First of all, like they don't know you like that. 
And also like you're asking them to do a lot of work versus giving them a list of things to pick from. Um, the second thing is you're establishing credibility because, and their, and their comfort level goes up because you know the issues they're facing. They know they don't have to educate you. So you've earned trust, you've earned credibility, you've reduced the friction and they're primed to talk. And the third reason is it gives them room to correct you. And people love to correct other people. They especially love to correct salespeople. And so even you don't have to be 100% accurate. In fact, it's better if you're not, because when they tell you, well, actually, yeah, I, I get that based on the market, but really what we're dealing with is X, Y, and Z. That's where you want to get to anyway. How do you choose the altitude of the menu of pain that you are presenting to them? Because I imagine you could be like, the way that you voiced it over, you didn't say, hey, you know, we work with people that want to multi-thread more effectively or prospect and get more in their pipeline and prevent churn. You actually said things that were a little bit higher. So if I'm sitting here thinking about how I'm going to apply this to my sales work, how should I think about the way that I talk about those problems or initiatives? Yeah, that's really important. There's two different ways I think about it. The first one is their persona, right? Because all of us have buying committees that have three to eight different personas or departments. So that's the first way, because if we deal with sales, sales ops or revenue operations and marketing, and a VP of marketing cares about pipeline differently than a VP of sales, right? Who's really more interested in revenue, right? So I have to know who my audience is from a persona level. I also want to know who my audience is from a power line level. Skip Miller talks about above the line and below the line. So above the line means like generally director and above, VP and above. Above the line cares about risk. They care about market share. And you heard what I just said to him, you know, they're worried about grabbing market share, right? If I had a sales manager on a call, I would not say, I wouldn't be focused on risk about mar or talk about market share because that's not what a sales manager cares about. What a sales manager cares about is how is this going to help the individual performance of my individual team? They don't care what's in their 10K. That's not the right audience for that. And so it's really important to understand where you are in the power line of the organization to know how you do that menu of pain because it's not going to be the same for different levels of the org. And so let's unpack this a little bit more. So let's say I pick one of those paths and I'm a VP of sales. Everyone listening, what User Gems does is it essentially allows you to track people who are previously customers that you've sold into in the past. And those customers have now moved on to work for another company, right? Super, super simple, can be used for CS, can be used for sales, et cetera, right? So let's say I'm a VP of sales and I say, Kristen, you know, it's, I don't care about the churn thing. I do think it's a pipeline thing, right? We're really, really, really focused on creating more pipeline, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Where do you take me from that point on? We want to ask the next level questions, the next layer questions. And those are and those are the questions, the next ones that are on my little note cards. But so if someone says, oh, you know, well, we really need more pipeline. Okay, great. What's prompting that need? Right. We want to have that open, that open question next. We don't want to get happy ears and be like, oh, pipeline, I can help you solve that. And then immediately start talking about it. We want to ask what prompted that need because they're are a dozen reasons why they could be facing a pipeline problem. And if I don't know what three or four of those are, I can then really botch the rest of the call and the demo because I'll be talking about things that aren't relevant to them. Mm. 
And so what's key here, folks, is a lot of times people start with open-ended questions. Tell me about your priorities. Why'd you take the call? What Kristen is doing is she's using what we oftentimes call as typically language, right? And she's starting with a closed-ended question saying, here are the top three problems we typically see. And what you're doing is you're actually removing the ability for the call to go off the rails into non-problem-based things. You're starting with problems. And then the moment you get to a problem, that's when you're actually opening it up with an open-ended question. And you're saying, hey, now that we've aligned that there's a problem, what is the reason for that problem? Or how did you realize that that is a problem? And so you're now transitioning to more why questions after that. I'm curious, how far deep do you go? Or at what point do you know you've done enough digging and digging and digging and digging? At which point you can stop and tell one of those stories that you mentioned? Yeah. I'll give the answer that Chris Orlov used whenever he was on 30 MPC, which is, you know, you've done enough when you have an executive level problem. This lack of pipeline is because we have long sales cycles and long sales cycles are causing us to have a cash flow issue. And this cash flow issue means we may have to raise a down round. And then he, he talks, that's a specific story that he talks through. And so like raising a down round is definitely an executive level problem, right? That's a big deal. It affects your valuation. And so you can stop there and then start to, now, you, now you're at the root of it. Now you're at the thing behind the thing. And so now you can start addressing the real need. Right. I mean, what I think too many reps do is they take that first statement at face value. And you were lucky in that scenario where a lot of times, especially with inbound leads, prospects will probably come to you and say, hey, we really need a system to be able to track job changes right? They've already come to you with the solution in mind. You're doing a good job in the beginning of at least getting them to the problem, which is, okay, we need more pipeline. And when they say we need more pipeline, most reps go, awesome, we can help with that. Let me immediately shift into sharing with you why we're best positioned to help you get more pipeline. But until you know the underlying causes of why that is indeed an issue, you are not able to eloquently and strategically sell. You have to know all of the nitty gritty details behind what is prompting that need in order to actually articulate, hey, here is why we are best suited to it. So you actually have to show a little restraint where you don't jump on things right away. I actually want to talk about sort of timing and pacing sort of related to that restraint, because one of the things that you talked about, you made this LinkedIn post where you talked about the matching urgency with the the buyer. And you talked about there's I don't know, a couple different sort of timings or cadences that the customer will have related to wanting to make a change. Can you talk through that piece of the call? Yeah, this is super important and it helps save everyone a lot of time. And it's very, it's a very transparent, again, you're earning credibility of, by the way, you're asking this call at the end. If we're on a call, I might say, you know, Nick, I've enjoyed talking with you today. I just want to end by saying there's generally three reasons why people show up to these calls. Sometimes people join because they're purely in education mode and they just want to understand new tools. You know, user gems fairly new. Sometimes people join the call because they have a big churn or pipeline or revenue problem that they really needed solved 6 months ago. And then sometimes people join because they they need to do something probably in the next 12 months but it's really not urgent. So, I'm just curious where you'd put yourself on that scale and I'm asking because I never want to chase anyone. And if it's purely education, 100% okay. I want to ask you about this motion where you're selling almost through a rep. 
I imagine there are times that you get an inbound demo request from one of your like hot, hot target accounts that you really want to sell to. And you're like, oh, this is awesome. And then you look and it's Nick Sigelski, the AE. I don't imagine you totally ignore that person because they're at a really hot account, but we both know that an AE is not going to be signing that contract. What is your approach with that person? Do you email them? Do you call them? If you do, like, do you set up a meeting? What's that meeting look like? And how is it different than a meeting with a VP of sales? I will do, I'll give you a menu of pain at the beginning. Like, you know, Nick, whenever reps are interested in this, usually it's because they have some fear around hitting quota. Maybe it's a new year and they have a you know much bigger territory. Sometimes it's because they've been at the organization a long time and people historically have a hard time hitting quota. Sometimes it's just like this, you saw this on LinkedIn, it was a LinkedIn ad and you were interested. So just curious where you'd put yourself on that scale and kind of figure out there, assuming that there's some level of pain, then I want to figure out how widely felt is that pain, right? Is it just isolated to one team? Is this a, a problem that everyone feels? And then, okay, well, how many teams are there? Like just understanding the ripple effects. And so then just kind of understanding where to take the demo. And then I will demo a little bit because I want to get the person excited. And also they're taking their time. It needs to be worth their time. So we demo a little bit. And then at the end then I'm asking, especially if they're really excited, then I tell them, okay, generally, Nick, who gets involved in this is sales leaders, marketing leaders, rev ops leaders. Generally, the next step is getting some sort of leadership group involved like in your organization like who do you think that would be or or do you think there's even enough interest to even talk to you do you think a vp sales even jumps on a call like this because i want to gauge how important it is like maybe it's just this one rep that they're brand new and they really want to hit quota but this is not widely felt across the organization it's still good intel but i just want to understand where we are in the deal or non-deal and so the AE at the end says, yeah, you know what? Armand, our VP of sales, is the guy who's going to sign off on all of these things. But I'm going to go talk to him, and I'll let you know how it goes. Do you accept that? Do you try to push for a meeting with Armand? What's what's your approach when that happens? What I, I want to make them feel okay about that. I also want to help them understand that they are not the gatekeeper, and they do not might control my access to Armand. And so what I'll say is, you know, Nick, yeah, if, if you want to speak to Armand, like that would be great. I'm sure he would, you know, take your advice and be really interested in what you have to say. People across our organization have been reaching out to people in your organization for six months. It's a big account, big target account for us. We have conversations set up with several folks. We're actually interacting with your CRO right now, trying to get a meeting with them. So we'll continue to do that. I'm sure you'll hear our name around. Um, yeah, and we'd love it if you put in a, a good word for us, you know, if, if your VP like brings it up. Because I, I want them to understand, yeah, great if you want to throw your two cents in, but understand that we're not depending on you to get us to the next level. Well, what a lot of people do is they take this, it's oftentimes called a groundswell motion where you start with AEs or individual contributors and you work your way up. And a lot of times they try to use these AEs as glorified referral sources. And that's one way to go about it. But you're describing as using the AEs for a couple other reasons that I think are even more impactful. The first is you're using them for ammunition and discovery, where you can ask AEs more uncomfortable questions because it doesn't feel like you're calling the baby of the VP of sales ugly to the VP of sales. You can ask the AE, hey, you're a rep. Are people hitting quota on your team? Versus that might be something that a VP of sales is a little bit defensive about right? And then you're explicitly not trying to make them part of the process. 
but you're using that later in that call to drive up your closing ratios with that VP of sales to do what you described earlier, which is establishing credibility because you're showing up and you're saying, we've already talked to these 10 companies like you. And on top of that, we've talked to 10 reps on your team. And that's what a VP of sales wants to do is they want to de-risk the sale for themselves. And you're essentially already putting yourself inside of their network. So I'm curious, Kristen, the last thing is, let's say that you've gone and you've had that conversation with that AE or with 10 AEs. And now you finally get that meeting with the VP of sales. And now you're excited for that meeting, what have you. Do you lead with the same typically question with the same three generic typically answers? Or how do you weave that information that you got into that VP discovery call? It's a number of ways, but I love a pattern interrupt. What I have done in the past is one of my favorite things is I will take the quotes that I've written down in my notes from the 10 AEs that I've interviewed, and I will put them on one or two slides. One is super impactful because it looks like a huge number, right? If you have 10 quote bubbles or 10 bullet points or whatever with these quotes, or you can group them by different like department or whatever. But when you hit them with the words of the people, it, they are in, they are instantly interested, right? Because people for the for the just the reason you mentioned their VP, people don't often speak super candidly to VPs. They may not even know the level of like pain or concern or like murmuring that's going on with their reps. And when you say, I've talked to 10 of your reps, that's probably 10 more than they've talked to in the last month. And so then all of a sudden you are in the position of giving them information about their own organization and helping them draw connections. And that is hugely powerful. And so put that information into a slide or two, and then maybe ask questions from there or get their feedback, like curious what your response is and go from there. But no, it should not feel generic. It should be feel very specific based on the information you've, you've gathered. I want to ask you one more question and actually fast forward all the way to the end of this sale. And you posted this really interesting story on LinkedIn recently where you got an email from a prospect who wanted to have a race to the bottom with you, where they were asking you, hey, please send over your best price. And you responded to that message in a really eloquent way. And I'm wondering if you could tell me that story in about 90 seconds. I think it speaks to the commonality of this scenario based on how fast that post took off on LinkedIn and all the comments that were happening around it. So this was a fairly early stage deal where we had talked with them a couple of times and then they kind of ghosted us. And so I put them in a nurture sequence just to follow up, giving them value add kind of thought leadership every once in a while. And he just responded out of the blue. And he says basically like, hey, the tool's great, but too expensive. Your best bet is to give me your bottom price and we'll just see if it works. And I was like, well, okay. So then the next thing I want to find out if price is the issue, is that the only issue? right? Like, do you love us? You just can't swing the price. And so I asked that and he was like, no, there are other tools that would work. Just give me your bottom price. And I was kind of stunned by that level of, I don't often hear it, but that bluntly, even if that's what they mean. So worked with my team, kind of came up, my colleague Caroline came up with this beautiful response that was basically prospect I find that it's really not useful in a partnership to start off with like a race to the bottom, especially where we're not vendor of choice and price has nothing to do with it. So I'm not able to just throw a dart and give you a price without understanding where are the gaps and what what's the value of the gap that we're solving for you. I hope you understand. I really want to work with you, but I'm just not able to just take a stab in the dark. 
can you help me out? That was the end, right? We're establishing, we're being friendly, but firm and we're, we're not just giving in. Loved it. And what you ultimately found out was they didn't respond to that email, which saved you a ton of time trying to negotiate with your boss for a better price and putting together a proposal and then following up and following up and wasting time in forecasting meetings. You got your answer right there. And I thought that was really powerful. You were not subservient. Kristen, we are running out of time and we got to move to the final question. And the final question is this. We've talked about a lot of really great things salespeople should be doing. Now I got to ask you about a shouldn't. And so the last question is, what's one bad habit that you see a lot of salespeople exhibiting that you think they need to break because it hurts them more than it helps? Yeah. So this kind of ties a ribbon on it, takes us back to the top three things, which is information means nothing without execution. Very few people have a plan or a system to apply what they hear. Stop just consuming information, synthesize it, but in your own worlds, apply it, make a system for how to use it. You're going to get so much value out of all the good information that you're taking in. Boom. Kristen, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. And everybody stick around for a 60 second recap coming up soon. Today's tactic to triple your connect rate is brought to you by Rocket Reach, who provides data that lets you reach out to the right person at the right account at the right time. Every time you're reaching out to an account, pull down the contacts again. Yes, I know it sucks, but the average tech tenure is two years, which means 50% of the workforce turns over every year. So look up the account, pull anyone who was hired, and scratch anyone who was left. And one way you can pull verified and accurate data is with Rocket Reach. So if you like this, check out their toolkit on eight ways to triple your cold call connects in the show notes. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Woodpecker. When you're sending a sales email, you generally want to avoid putting punctuation in the subject line. If you've got an exclamation point, it makes it seem like you're shouting at them. Look at this amazing offer. And a question mark just smells salesy. So avoid punctuation. Now, if you want to steal my full sales cadence from my friends at Woodpecker, there's a link in the show notes for you to go get it and try it for free. Here's my secret to being a sales superhuman. It's auto reminders for everything. If I expect any reply from a prospect, I press command H and superhuman pops it right back into my inbox. If I don't get a reply in two days, that means if you handle an objection, if you suggest times for a meeting, or if you ask for cuts back on red lines, always create a two day reminder task and assume they will not reply. So if you want to follow up on time, every time you can get a free month of superhuman by checking it out in the show notes. Your top four takeaways from this episode with Kristen Connor include number one, you start with the menu of pain, the three biggest problems that any given persona can face. Number two, once you align on that problem, then you can ask what's prompting that need. Number three, you're allowed to start talking about solutions once you have an executive level problem like a down round or a churn problem. And then number four, if you use individual contributors in a groundswell motion, in this case, account executives, get inside intel from them on the organization, and then put all of their quotes on one to two slides when you meet with the VP or the CXO. All righty, Nick, how could people help us out? Well, you actually can help yourself if you have a customer or a user of your software that has changed jobs. What we did with User Gems was we built a sequence that you can go steal for when you are prospecting Armand when he leaves 30 Minutes to President's Club to go be the host of 72 Minutes to President's Club. It's a little bit slower pacing of a show. There's a link in the show notes for you to go steal that sequence that we built with them. Go check it out, and we'll see you next week on the show.
Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90-Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes. This week's actionable prospecting tactic is from Sixth Sense, who shows you the prospects who are most likely to buy so you can get more meetings with fewer activities. Personalizing cold emails requires you to only change the first paragraph in a trigger template. All you have to do is tie the research to the problem you solve in paragraph one, and then switch that out while you leave paragraphs two and three, your solution and call to action, exactly the same. And so we are giving you six of these trigger templates with our partners at Sixth Sense. The link is in the show notes. 